We uh, continue our summer series with yet another list from the Bible. Who's excited? <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a good one. This is a, a brief list and probably, I'm going to guess, familiar to many of you. It's found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. If you don't mind, I'm actually going to go ahead and, and, and read from verse 3 through 8. So it's not in your notes or on the screen, but I'm going to read Micah 6, verse 3 through 8. I think the context is going to be important here. This is the Lord speaking, and he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I send before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. People respond, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is God's word. Now, only three lines in this list in verse 8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It describes the kind of life God wants us to live. So it's a pretty important thing to figure out, isn't it? What does God want from us? What does God require from, from people? This passage tells us what He requires, and it also tells us how God enables us, how He empowers us to live this kind of life. So Let's work through it. I only have two points today, which has no relation to the length of the sermon, <laughs> but only two, two points. The first one is the good life, the description of this life God wants, and then secondly, the good Lord, and that is about how He empowers us to live it. Okay, so let's look at this good life. <clears throat> he has told you, O man, what is good, Micah says. He has told you, O man, what is good. Now, the word man here is literally Adam. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when, when uh, in Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make man in our image, let us make Adam in our image, it's a generic term for, for human beings that became a proper name for the first human being made by God. So he has told you, O Adam, he has told you, O man, what is good. And this word good is the same word used all over Genesis 1 as part of the refrain, and God saw that it was good. When God created something, He saw and He proclaimed that it was good. And then when He made people, He said it was very good. Now, when you read this text, right away it takes you to Genesis 1. You have to think there's something primal that's happening here. There's something fundamental, something essential, something that is very, very basic to being a human being. It gets at the meaning of life. It gets at at the purpose of life, at the essence of life. This is not a list of ideas to enrich your life or a couple of things to try to make your life more exciting. This is not what this list is. 
This is God who created us, God who designed us, and designed us and the world we live in. And the same God is now giving us a definition of the kind of life we ought to live. Now, we have to start here. This is God speaking to the human beings He has created in the world that He has designed, and He says, this is how you ought to live in it. This is the good life, God describing it. Now, the good life is a philosophical concept uh, that describes what human existence should be ideally, what we should strive for. And beginning with the Greeks and including Kant and Nietzsche, all those guys, all the philosophers have grappled with this idea. What is the definition of real life, good life, meaningful life, a life of flourishing, a life of happiness? And each philosopher has come up with their own list. And some of them have based their list on the previous philosophers and developed it and added and adapted different things. All of them have a list. And so God has a list too. God tells us what this good life is. And by the way, every human being, whether you're interested in philosophy or not, every human being has this picture in their mind, has this innate sense of what they are living for, what they're striving to achieve in their lives. Now think about it as a vision that drives you, that determines your decisions. Because none of us are choosing things and making decisions and, and doing things purely reacting to things. No, we're, we're going somewhere. We're trying to shape our life in a certain way. We're trying to get somewhere. And often that vision of this good life is not well-defined or even consciously understood by us. It's often something that feels right. It's often something that is just in our imagination. It's something that often we get from the culture around us, from the people and structures and institutions and ideas and art around us. And so all of us have this vision of the good life. The question is, is it the right vision? And how do we get there? What are some of the barriers to overcome? What are some of the steps to achieve to get there? Can we even get there at all, or is it just, just an ideal? Now, there's no better place to find the cultural idea of the good life than in advertising. Now, you know, right? You know that every commercial is selling a product or a service, yes. But really what they're doing is they're trying to connect us to this vision of the good life and tell us that by buying their product, we can get there, we can get closer to it, we can improve our life, maybe, maybe achieve a little more on the way to this good life. Now, they're selling things like cars and jeans and medicine and, or services like financial services or skincare products or whatever. But they're actually, what they're actually saying, every commercial, what it's saying is that you need these things in your pursuit of the good life. So, for example, car commercials portray cars driving up mountains, right? You've seen lots of those commercials. No paved roads, Cars just going up the hill, over the rocks, or saving turtles on the beach. Have you seen that commercial, right? <laughs> Let me tell you, none of us are going to do any of that with our cars, right? <laughs> Nobody's looking for a car that can save turtles. It's, it's just not, but, but everybody loves the idea that somehow we can contribute to the flourishing of our community, to the flourishing of our planet. And so... The, the sale is, you know, the sales pitch, pitch is, buy this so you can get there. 
Now, that's why every commercial is utterly ridiculous and highly effective. It's ridiculous because it, we all know no car is going to get us there, right? We all know that. We all know that the most important thing in life is not your credit score. It just isn't, right? But those commercials are highly effective because they're tapping into this vision of the good life. Because they're making you think of the kind of life you want to lead. So that's why jeans commercials are actually not about jeans, but they're about self-confidence and authenticity, right? Because that's what you want. You want to be comfortable with yourself. You want to be who you really want to be. And sales pitches, jeans will get you there. They won't. Of course they won't. And yet we go and buy that pair of jeans. Why? We want that good life. We want to, to experience these things. Uh, there's this other car commercial where a whole family, there's an extended family, right? And they, they all shop at this one dealer, right? So they all get the same cars. But among all of them, there's a full lineup of, of the models of that, of that automaker. And they all drive up this mountain together, and they set up this big screen, and they celebrate their parents' anniversary by showing the home, a home, moody, uh, home movie on, this, on the side of the, what looks like a you know, Grand Canyon. What is it tapping into? It's tapping into our, our, our desire for community, for being loved and accepted, being with people who love and accept us, of celebrating these things in life that we know instinctively are very valuable. Now, of course, not about the car, right? And yet many of us feel like, hmm, those cars look nice, right? Why do they look nice? Because we want family. We want, that's the good life. So all this is is that, that they're projecting a, a vision, something that resonates with us, and they're saying, you can get there. Now all of us are trying to get there, and all of us have a slightly different vision of what that good life is. Now the question is, what is it exactly, and who gets to define it? Well, Micah says the God who created us tells us how to live. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Micah says the Lord has not hidden from you what this good life is. And so what is it? And the Lord describes it very simply by giving us this short list. Three things, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What is this good life we're all longing for? It's a life of justice and a life of kindness and a life of humility before our God. Now, notice that the list is not about what you have. There's nothing on this list that you have acquired, that you have earned, that you have achieved. No. It's, it's who you are. The good life consists in the person that you are. It's not about what you have gotten in life, but what kind of person you have become. The good life, according to God, is about inner qualities and the right relationship to the world and to the God who created it. Now, David Brooks makes a helpful distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Have you heard that before? Resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues is your skills, your achievements, things you put on your resume to get a job, right? Things you put honestly on your resume to get a job. Eulogy virtues is what people are going to tell about you, what they're going to remember about you at your funeral, when none of, none of what you've achieved matters, <laughs> and they're going to remember who you are, and they're going to talk about your character, and they're going to wonder if, 
If that person was kind or loving or brave, that's what they're going to talk about. So there's a distinction. There are resumes, resume virtues that most of us actually live our lives to try to cultivate and achieve. But ultimately what matters, what the good life consists of, is eulogy virtues. And we actually see this contrast in our passage, and that's why I wanted to read the context of this, because a lot of us know verse 8, but there's a build-up to that. Now look at Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, right before the famous verse. This is God's people saying, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, these are all resume virtues. These are all things that they want to do to commend themselves to God. The idea is that if we do this, then we will have the good life we are longing for. Thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil, even children, they're saying, we will sacrifice our firstborn children to you so we can have this good life. These are all the things that we can do, even the, the awful things like sacrificing children, these are all the things we can do. But that is not what the Lord requires. The Lord requires eulogy virtues. He says He wants us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with Him. Now, let's make sure we understand what He requires, and I'll draw this contrast more as we go. Number one, to do justice. To do justice. It means to do what's right. To do what's right. This word is often used in reference to protecting the rights of the vulnerable in Scripture, like the orphans or the widows or the sojourners. People who are not, they don't have power themselves. They, they cannot protect their own rights, and so justice is making sure that their rights are protected. The idea here is to do what's right even when you don't have to do it. In the ancient world, when an orphan was mistreated, what could she do? She had to rely on someone else to protect her. She had no power, no leverage herself. But justice, if a society functions justly, justice demands that we treat everyone in the way they ought to be treated, the way God sees it, the way God sees every human being made in God's image, deserving of respect, deserving of dignity, deserving of their rights to be preserved. That's justice. It's doing things right. It's living in God's economy, understanding that each person matters. Even if that person doesn't matter to everybody else, that person matters to God, and so he matters to us who want to do justice. To do justice is to accept this order, to accept God's order and design. This is about the second table of the law. You remember when Moses gave God's people, Ten Commandments. The, the first four commandments largely dealt with our relationship with God, right? It's, it's what we think of God, how we worship Him, what we do with other gods. It's vertical. But then the last six all have to do with how we treat other people. And the idea here is justice. We are to do justice to other people. We're commanded to honor our parents. That's just. That's right to honor your parents. Now, many children don't have to honor their parents especially their older aging parents. You don't have to do that. But to do justice is you do that even when you don't have to. We're told not to murder. 
not to murder when, even when it's legal, we're not to murder. Even when there's nothing going to be done to you for that, we are not to murder because that's just. That's right in God's world. We're not to commit adultery. I mean, even if nobody thinks it's wrong anymore, we are not to do that because that's just and right in God's world. This is how God made us. He expects marriages to stay together and for husbands and wives to love each other and stay faithful to each other. We're commanded not to steal yeah, because you respect other people's property. You expect what they respect. Even if you can't take it from them and nothing's going to happen to you, you are not supposed to do that. That's justice. We're commanded not to hurt others by lying, by bearing false witness, and not to covet other people's lives, whether it's their relationships or their stuff. Now, this is what doing justice actually looks like. And notice that it says to do justice, to do it. It's not the same as being outraged over injustice or wishing things were different or talking about it. No, no, this is doing justice. The good life is about restoring the rights of others, is making choices that promote the right order of society, committing one's resources to the just causes. It's actually doing something that costs you. It's spending time doing what's right. Now, I live in a community that, that has a big issue with littering. It's just a lot of trash everywhere. And if you go on our neighborhood social platform site, you will find many people outraged. I mean, it's a constant topic of conversation. You know, why is it that it's so dirty? Why is it there's so much trash around? What has happened to our community? Like, all that stuff. But there are only actually a very small number of people who are picking up that trash. There are people like that. There are people who are managing community trash, trash cans who are taking time to, to pick up trash. Now, there are not many of them, but they're actually doing justice right? They're actually doing it. They're restoring something. They're doing something that is right. Our streets should not be littered with trash. That's not a right thing to see. And so some people are saying, okay, we will fix that. We'll fight against that. We'll push back on that. That's doing justice. That's the first one. You do things that are right so you can live in the world that's rightly ordered. Secondly, the second ingredient of the good life is to love kindness, to love kindness. Now, the word used here can be translated mercy. In some of your Bibles, it says to love mercy. It can also be translated steadfast love. It's the same word that is used of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So when you read the Bible and it talks about how God is, how his steadfast love endures forever, how he loves his people with this loving kindness or steadfast love, this unending grace, right? That's the word. And so we're supposed to love that. We're supposed to share that virtue in our own lives. Now, in the New Testament, of course, it's called grace. We're supposed to love grace. Now, to love kindness or to love mercy or grace is to have a disposition to bless others, to seek their good, as God does with us. And notice that we are called to do justice, but to love kindness. Now, in a way, it's our love of kindness that moves us to do justice. There's a connection. Justice and mercy are never separate in God's economy. And so we do things that are right because we love kindness, because we want to bless, because we want to give, because we want to forgive, because we want to help, 
That's our disposition. And so justice happens because we are merciful, gracious people. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says, the prophet does not say to do mercy, but to love it, to take a delight in it, to find great pleasure in the forgiveness of injuries, in the helping of the poor, in the cheering of the sick, in the teaching of the ignorant, in the winning back of sinners to the ways of God. Now, you see, that's a eulogy virtue. It's not a resume virtue because you can't conjure up love of mercy in your heart. You just can't do it. You can do merciful things. You can even do justice if you really try. But to love mercy, to love kindness, and then do justice out of that, that's a character thing. That's a hard thing. That's an internal thing. It's a eulogy virtue. And the last thing on our list is to walk humbly with our God. We are to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Humility before God is a key part of the good life. You don't see that often in commercials. That's not portrayed very often. But actually, humility, gratitude, knowing your place before God is a key element to living the good life. Now, the language of walking, which to walk humbly with our God, underlines the relationship of our humility, the, the relational nature. We are with God. We're moving with Him. We're walking like friends with Him. And that's where our humility comes from. We function in the right relationship with God. That's part of the good life. Pride is putting on ourselves in the place of God. But humility is knowing your place before God. We are creatures who are accountable to our Creator. We are subjects of our King. We are children who are loved by our Father. This is where that humility comes from, is knowing who you are in relation to God. And then you walk with Him. You live with Him. Humility is remembering that life does not revolve around me. I'm not the ruler of my life. I live under God. I walk humbly with Him before Him. Let me give you an illustration. The writer Brett Lott describes a life-changing day. He was teaching at Vermont College, and he spent the morning talking to his agent about a book he was working on, and he was complaining how this book is no good, and this contract is not going to work out, he's not going to meet his deadline. He was very frustrated. And then at lunch, he noticed that one of his students was not there. And it was a small school, so he knew everybody in his class. And one of his students was missing. And when they came to check on him, they found him slumped in his desk chair. He had a brain aneurysm and died while reading a book. The book he was reading was a novel by Brett Lott, probably for class. And this was a sobering moment for Lott he realized that as he was fretting over his latest project with his agent, someone died. Someone died reading his book. And then later the same day, this is what makes that day so memorable to him, later that day, Lot received a call from Chicago. It was Oprah Winfrey. Ever got a call like that? <laughs> Pick up a phone and that's Oprah? He did. And she chose Brett Lott's book, Jewel, for her book club. And almost instantly, Brett Lott became an incredibly successful, famous, wealthy author. But he never forgot the day when he got that call from Oprah. 
And so to stay humble, now he's, he's a Christian man, so he's intentionally trying to walk humbly with his God, to stay humble and to resist the temptation of fame and money. He put the name of the student who had died that day on an index card and carried it with him as long as he was known as the Oprah guy. Always had it in his pocket. And so whenever he put his hand in, a, in his pocket, he would think, Jim Ferry, Jim Ferry, that's the name of the man who died. And it helped him put his life in perspective. He was simply trying to walk humbly with his God. Now, it's easy to assume that uh, life is about me until you place yourself in the right position before God and others and you realize that we have a God above us. Our lives are governed by Him. And all my accomplishments are just vapor. And my life can get snuffed out any time, at any moment, no matter what I'm doing. That's humility. You realize, I'm not in charge. I'm not a life giver. My life depends on God, just like all my accomplishments, all my gifts come from God. Whatever I get to do, I get to do under His authority. So that's the life. That's the good life that God tells us about. We are to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this list? Well, you can memorize it. Uh, you can put it on, on, on pretty canvas paintings in your, in your house, as some of us have done, to remind you of that. But how do you live it out? How do you actually apply this? Well, let me tell you a wrong way to apply it, and then we'll get to the right way. Here's one way to misuse this list. We can turn this list into the list of resume virtues very easily. We can actually take this list, and we can turn it into the list of resume virtues. We can live in the way that says, look at me. I really care about justice. Oh, just, just scroll through my, my social media feed. I mean, you will know how much I care about justice. I am this quick to respond. Something happens, I'm right there on social media, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I think about it. And by the way, I love kindness. Everybody knows that I'm a nice guy. Some people don't even know I'm selfish at all. And by the way, I'm pretty humble. Pretty humble. Most people say so. I'm pretty, pretty humble. And so you check it, right? You make that list and you say, okay, do justice, check. Love kindness, check. Be humble, check. And then you say, well, all of this makes me acceptable to God. If that's what He requires, I got it. He must accept me now. Now, is that what this passage is about? Do you know how many people take this passage like this? And they say, this is the essence of life. Do these things. Care about justice. Care about kindness. Care about humility. And that's how you meet God's requirements. There are many people who take this passage and make it the main message of the Bible. And they say, this is what the Bible is all about. The Lord tells us what He requires of us. We do it, and He loves us and accepts us. And if we don't do it, He punishes us and rejects us. Live like this, and God will be happy. Break these rules, and God will be angry. Now, here's the problem. This is not the main message of the Bible. It isn't. 
And if you read the Bible, you very quickly realize that the context of these verses is very, very important. And though the Lord does require this, absolutely, the Lord also supplies what we need to fulfill His requirements. The message of the Bible, the central message of the Bible, is actually the opposite of what I've just described. Here's the main message of the Bible, or what we call the gospel. God accepts you by grace, and you respond by living in obedience to Him. God accepts you by grace, and you respond by living in obedience to Him. Do you see how it's completely opposite of what a lot of people think this passage means? It's not, I live in obedience to Him, and if I do well, God accepts me, and if I don't do well, God punishes me. No, it's actually, I'm accepted by grace because of God's love. And I get to now live my life, live this good life differently because of His grace. Now, we see that in this passage, and we see it throughout the Scriptures. Now, let me show you where I see it in this passage. Go to Micah 6, verses 3, and 5, 3 4, and 5. Now, this is how this passage actually starts. And God says, O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, before the Lord says what he requires of them, he tells them what he has done for them. Just like the Ten Commandments and the law of God comes after the redemption from Egypt. It doesn't come before. The Lord doesn't come to Moses and says, my people are in slavery in Egypt. Go and tell them what I require of them. And if they do it, I will take them out. This is not what the Lord does. The Lord says, go and take them out. Lead them out. I will rescue them. And then after they are rescued, he gives them the law. He gives them now live the good life that I offer to you by grace. And here in this passage, the Lord says, look at what I have done for you. I redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. And then I gave you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all these leaders to guide you and protect you in the wilderness. I have kept you safe. I have given you all that you need. He says, don't you remember? What else could I have done for you? The Lord says, have I wearied you with my grace? Have I done enough for you to notice my righteous right acts he says do you remember when when Balaam went to look for this prophet or Balak went went to look for the prophet Balaam and told him to curse you and I didn't let him curse you but I made you bless made him bless you the Lord says remember when I turned the curses into blessings for you and it says remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal Shittim was the last place in the wilderness Gilgal was right when they crossed over and so it says, do you remember when I parted the, the river so you can walk on dry land, so you can go into the land that I gave you, that I gave you as a gift because of my covenant faithfulness to you, because of my love for you? Now, what is the Lord saying? He's saying, look at what I have done for you. Look at my grace. Look at how much I love you. Look how much I'm committed to you. Look everything that I've done for you. What does it tell you? It tells you that I love you, that you're mine that I'm offering you this good life. 
And now what is your response? And what's interesting is that the next verses, the next two verses are, well, what should we do? <laughs> should we bring animals to him? Should we bring our children to him? Should we collect all the oil, 10,000 of rivers of oil? Should we give it to him? Why are they responding the way? They're still bringing their resume to, the, to him. And the Lord is saying, look at my resume. Look at what I've done for you. And now because of that, learn what I require of you. Because of that, respond in obedience. Part of the good life is to walk humbly with your God. With your God. Now, some people take it as, well, whatever your God is, whoever your God is, your God, walk with him or her, and then that's what humility is. But that's not what the text means. The text means that this God, the only God, becomes your God. Through his righteous acts, through this grace, where he takes people out of slavery, where he guides them in the wilderness, where he provides for them and brings them on dry land across the river into the land of promise, that God becomes your God. And so the way we live must be coming from the way he loves us. It is our relationship with God that is based on his kindness to us, his acceptance of us by grace, that shapes our character and changes our lives. What the Lord requires is incredibly similar to who he himself is in his character. What the Lord is actually expects of us is to resemble him, is to be like him. What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life right now? He is making you like Jesus. The good life is his own life that he graciously gives us. Now, here are two ways to relate to God. The first one is to try to do what he demands and hope that he's happy with us and hope that he's not going to be angry with us. Hope that somehow you do enough that you do enough justice, that you love kindness enough, that you are humble enough that the Lord is not going to be angry with you. And then somehow he looks at your resume and he notices it and he accepts you. The second way is to accept what he has done for you and be utterly changed by that. The first way is to create a resume that might get his attention, but the second one is to be changed by his resume. The first is to try to build the good life, to make it happen. The second is to be welcomed into the good life of God himself. Now, let me illustrate, and this is all about how you see God and who he is. Let me illustrate it. In his song, Highway 61 Revisited, I'm going to quote Dylan. Bob Dylan reimagined the story of Abraham and Isaac. This is an example of the first approach to God, which is very similar to, to verses 6 and 7, where they say, what should we do to God? What should we bring him? What kind of sacrifice should we give him to make him happy? Now listen to Dylan. He says, Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God say, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming you better run. Well, Abe says, where do you want this killing done? God says, out on Highway 61. We're all familiar with Highway 61, by the way. What do we see here? Dylan says, God can ask whatever he wants, and I have to give it to him, because whatever he demands, I have no recourse. He's that kind of God. 
He can require anything of me and he will get it and there's nothing I can do. And if I don't give it to him, he will punish me. That's his view of God. That's the view of God that many, many people have. But later, Bob Dylan discovered the true meaning of the Abraham and Isaac story when he embraced the second way of approaching God. Now, you may be familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac, and you may know that it doesn't end with God making Abraham sacrifice his son. It doesn't end with the killing of the child on Highway 61. It doesn't end there. There was a ram caught in the thicket, and it was the sacrifice provided by the Lord that Abraham offered to him instead of his son. That was the story. What God demanded, God also provided. And the son was spared. And Abraham learned something very important about who God is. Because who God is is a God of grace who accepts you first, and then you respond to that in obedience. Of course, that story of Abraham and Isaac wasn't just a story in and of itself. It was pointing to something. It was pointing to something that would happen later when God sent Jesus to be offered as a sacrifice for our sins. The good Lord, who is both just and kind, has not withheld His Son, His only Son, but gave Him for us so we can have the good life with Him. This is how it works. And after Bob Dylan realized that God provided what he required of him, that the sacrifice was actually offered by God himself, he wrote another song called Saved. Listen to the words. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead, as I stepped out of the womb. By his grace I have been touched. By his word I have been healed. By his hand I've been delivered. By his spirit I've been sealed. I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. I don't know what the copyright rules are, but we can sing that song in church. This is a song that exactly tells us what kind of God we have and what kind of life he requires of us. Our God first loves us and then he welcomes us into this good life which he himself enables us to live. So how do you approach God? Which resume do you bring to him? Yours or his? Do you attempt to live the good life so that God would finally approve of you? Or do you enter into his good life by grace? We know what the good life is. The Lord has not hidden it from us. It's to do justice. It's to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But we cannot live it until we discover the good death of our good Lord. We cannot do justice until we see what it caused God to set this world right. We cannot love kindness until we see the grace of His redemption. We cannot walk humbly until we are humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ. We cannot have God as our God until we are reconciled with Him through Christ. We cannot do what God requires until we see that He has already done it for us. Friends, without the gospel, without this central message of the Bible that God loves us first 
and then he enables us to obey him. That God sent Jesus to save us, to accept us, to reconcile with us, and then he tells us how he wants us to live this good life, which is in itself a gift to us through Christ. Without the gospel, we will just go on adding things to our resume. But because of the gospel of this grace in Jesus, and in the power of this gospel, we actually can pursue the good life by doing justice, by loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. Because the good life is his own life. That's his own life that is given to us by grace. May the Spirit of God work this gospel into our hearts and transform our lives.